All right, so we're in Revelation 21. We are actually, this is the last main section or sermon in Revelation, which is hard to imagine. I'm going to do one more sermon next week to kind of put a bow on the whole thing. And I thought it would be interesting to use that time, let, basically let you guys drive what I talk about next week in regards to closing out this series on the book of Revelation. And so if you have questions about not just, you know, today's section of Revelation, but anything I've taught throughout in the last 24 weeks, it's taken 24 weeks to get through Revelation, anything at all that either you want clarified from me, maybe that I've said that you didn't quite understand, or things where you're not sure how it fits together, um, or maybe a particular topic that I maybe mentioned in passing, but you want more detail about, whatever it is, um, just send me an email. You can send that to office at livinghopetriad.com. If you don't want to remember that email address, you can just go to our website and go to the contact page and send that in that way. And send me questions, and then I'll just try to deal with as many of those questions as I can next week, next Sunday, as part of the sermon. If I don't get a lot of questions or any questions, that's fine too. I've got, I've got plenty of things that I can talk about um, next week, but I think it would be cool to give you an opportunity to ask your questions and then give me an opportunity to answer them more in depth next week. But that'll be the last sermon in Revelation, okay? That'll be next week. So this week we're in Revelation 21, and this Last section of Revelation details for us what's going to happen at the end of the age. Up until the last few weeks, I've been telling you that what we've been seeing in Revelation is, by and large, sort of present-day, present-era um, information. Okay, But now we're kind of in future territory, I believe, and that's part of what um, we're seeing this morning, is this last events that are going to happen when Jesus returns. So two weeks ago, remember Mother's Day was last week, so two weeks ago, we finished the, the always controversial chapter 20, the final judgment of Satan, also the final judgment of humanity, and now we're into the new heavens and new earth. I'm just calling that the cosmos, because it's a fun word to say. Um, all of that's renewed. The church is revealed also today in the new Jerusalem. Okay, so I gave you some homework on Facebook and by email, some scriptures to read. And I'm going to show you in a couple of minutes, about halfway through, how that connects to what we're reading. So I just want you to think about something to start out, and I prepare you, which is I want you to ponder all the promises of God. You don't have to know them like, like memorize them, but just think about all the things God has promised, not just to you, but to all of Christians across all of time, going all the way back to the beginning of the people of God, the Israelites. All those promises that God gave to them and to us, promises to sustain, to comfort, to provide, cover, heal, and encourage. He has promised what? To keep our faith secure right? To give us an eternal inheritance and to end all injustice. That's a quite a promise, to end all injustice. He has promised to give us imperishable joy, joy that doesn't fade or decrease over time. He's promised to make us whole, body, soul, and spirit. 
you and I have tasted, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you have tasted those promises, the fulfillment of those promises. You've experienced them in some measure, right? You've experienced joy. You've experienced comfort. You've experienced, you know, increasing wholeness as a person through God's healing in your life. But you've not, none of us have experienced any of the fulfillment of those promises in their fullness. None of that is complete. Not this side of heaven. None of us will. So if you're paying attention to your life at all, there's a mixture, right? There's a mixture of joy and sorrow, satisfaction, and a holy ache for something more. You know things are not as they ought to be and are not as they will one day be. Know this. Even in the middle of the happiest moment, you know you're not as happy or as joyful or as satisfied as you could be because you're waiting and you're waiting on something. You're waiting on someone Jesus, even our worship itself, even when if we're all together and, and, the, and all the, the, the circumstances were perfect, we'd still be aching for something more, more complete, more full when Jesus returns. This is kind of the human existence. I want you to think about all that as we read these verses, because this, these verses describe the ultimate final fulfillment of every single promise God has ever made. It's going to be an amazing day. So the first we're going to read about, um, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is, normally I read a little bit and talk about it, read a little bit and talk about it. I'm going to read this whole chapter and then talk about the whole chapter kind of as one thing. Okay. Um, the only thing you really need to know going into it before we read it is that there's two sections. First, you have verses 1 through 8, and then verses 9 through 27 are recapitulating or restating what verses 1 through 8 said, but with more information, more detail from a different vantage point. Okay, And I will remind you of that once we get to that point, that break. Also, don't get hung up on the detail. This is another one of those visions that John has. There's all these details in it. And a lot of people get really wrapped around the axle over trying to decipher or decode every, what every one of these little things mean. And most of the time in Revelation, that is not the point. The point is the big picture, the overall glorious picture that's being painted. So what you should be doing, instead of analyzing as you read, you should be imagining what you read. Let it that the visual splendor of this imagery your imagination and imagine it as you read it, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, here we go. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, so that's the first section. Now it's like we back up, we read again, but now with more detail. Okay, Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. It's crazy. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's a lot there, right? There's a lot of details, and those details are meant to just make you kind of make your eyes go big and your jaw drop. Okay, as you imagine all these jewels and pearls and gold and glassy crystal everywhere, all this light reflecting, and the light's not coming from a light you have on, an electric light, it's coming from the light of God and His glory radiating through all these jewels and colors and glass. It's amazing. You try to just imagine it. There's a lot of numbers in here. We've talked about these numbers before, so I'm not going to go into them a lot when we talked about the 144,000. 
That's, those are multiples of 12. Number 12 is important because you had 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. That's the foundation of the church, the leadership, the founda foundational leadership of the church, um, which tells you the position leaders should have in the church, by the way, at the bottom unseen, right? Um, that's a whole other sermon, but that's, that's what that's about. Those numbers are just speaking about the church, okay? So if you go back up to verse 1, he says there's a new heaven and a new earth. This is hugely important because so many Christians and even non-Christians have a very wrong idea of what Christianity teaches about the afterlife and what it's like. The earth we live on now in these verses is somehow dismantled by God. Maybe, maybe it's not like destroyed or exploded, right? Maybe God just overwrites it. Or maybe God will like just transform it fundamentally. We don't really know which it is. Um, the word new there, new heaven, new earth, is in verse one means new in its quality or essence. It's not, this doesn't mean new in time. Um, so it's hard to tell exactly what's going to happen, but it doesn't really matter. What's important is that the earth and the heavens. Not heaven as in where you go when you die, but heavens as the stars in the sky. All of that is remade, recreated, transformed into something new in its essence and its quality. That's going to be cool. So most people, Christian and non-Christian, have this very entrenched notion that Christianity teaches that the afterlife is some kind of disembodied, ethereal existence where... It's always depicted by some kind of like ghost or cherub floating on a cloud with like a bow and arrow or a harp or something like that. And they're by themselves just sort of floating. Or we think of it like ghosts, right? Like in the movies, ghosts that have no substance, no physicality. They're just like kind of these things, these auras that you can kind of see through and are immaterial. And we imagine that that's what the afterlife is. And it's actually not true. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible is very clear. There's going to be a new earth and a new heavens, the heavens above. All that's going to be recreated. We're going to live in remade bodies. Praise God for that. Probably formed out of our, the, the material of our current bodies. There will be an earth dirt under your feet. There's going to be a sky and planets. There will be people. There will be conversations and touch and lives lived with things to do and places to be and people to see, right? There will be probably be fulfilling work to do. The idea of work is something that God put into place before the fall, before sin entered into the world and messed it up, there was work to do, but it was different. It was fulfilling, and it wasn't hard to accomplish, and it wasn't like everything was conspiring against you to make work difficult. It was that work is easy, and work is fulfilling and valuable to the people doing the work. So probably there's going to be work in heaven to do, work on the new earth to do. You will have goals, projects. And all of it will be restful and without the interference of the curse of sin. Your relationships with each other will be without the interference of sin. This, this is a 
totally different and way cooler idea of the afterlife than what the cartoons tell you and what the movies tell you. Okay. So I plan on being your friend forever, which makes me laugh when I put it in the notes is that, you know, Michael W. Smith with his cheesy song, friends are friends forever is actually true. I used to make fun of that song and I just did. Right. Um, but that's the reality. Like, think about that. The people in this church right now, all of your Christian loved ones and friends, even the ones that are dead and gone, you will be there in relationship with them forever into eternity. And it will be a whole, perfect, loving relationship that never goes wrong, that never goes sour, it's never interfered with by your sin or their sin or the sin of someone else. So this new creation, here's your $10 word for today. This new creation is inviolable, mean, meaning it can't be violated, right? It means never to be broken, never to be infringed upon or dishonored in any way. That's what the new heaven and new earth is going to be like. I mean, let your imagination go there. This is incredible. We will get to hang out. No coronavirus to mess it up. And we'll get to hang out as much and as often as we want. And it won't, those relationships will never go sideways because there's no sin. That's amazing. And it's exciting. It's fun to think about and fun to look forward to. So that's the first picture we get. The, all of the cosmos is remade. It's not just done away with and now we're floating around like spirits everywhere. There's a physicality to it. And then we have this second picture. It's really fleshed out in that second section, starting in verse 9, with all that imagery. The holy city being remade, just like the heavens and earth are being remade. This new Jerusalem, he calls it, is actually the church. And this is where all those scriptures I had you read come into play, is that God, since the beginning, has had this intention to not just bless us and and make us like little test rats in a maze where he can look down on us from heaven and be curious and interested and maybe enjoy us from a distance that is not god's plan god's plan is not to remain at a distance and observe us and be like i'm pleased with how they're acting now that's not how this works okay God's plan has always been from the beginning, and you can see it in those scriptures I gave you to read this weekend. His plan all along has been to not just watch us from a distance, but to come and live among us. It's like, what? You see it in the garden at the beginning. God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He hung out with Adam and Eve. He hung out with them. Like, and they, they could chat with them. He was among them, and then what sin did, the worst thing that sin did was not curse the earth. The worst thing that sin did was separate and remove God from among us. And it is what he's been trying to fix ever since. And it's what he fixed when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. That's what he accomplished. And here we see in this chapter 21, in this description, is the new Jerusalem, is the church. It's very clear, okay? I'll give you one verse. I think it's clear in 
the verses 9 through 27, but I'll show you another scripture that will help you. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. Here's what the author of Hebrews says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Not the earthly Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so this ultimate heavenly Jerusalem is being pictured here. This is the church. He's Paul, or the author of Hebrews is talking to the church, and he's saying, "This is you. You are a. You're not a. No, it's no longer about the physical temple and the physical land of Jerusalem, and the 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 physical people of the Jews. It's about the world, and it's about the 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 new Jerusalem, the church, which is all believers throughout all of time. You can also see Second Corinthians six sixteen for another." Um, kind of supporting text for that idea. So this is the final fulfillment of what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 40 through 48, specifically ver- chapter 48. If you read the, if you read that this weekend, this it, this is this reads like this. These this description was already familiar to you if you read that, because it's a fulfillment. John is seeing a fulfillment in Revelation of what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 48. It's also what Isaiah saw in chapter 65, Isaiah 65, and Isaiah 66. It is the running thread of the purpose of God from the beginning, and all of it is being fulfilled. So here's what I would say, is that all of God's promises are wrapped up in this moment. Totally fulfilled. Every single promise he ever made to anybody in the church throughout all of time has been fulfilled. God made the universe and he put us in it in order that he might dwell among us. It has been his aim from the beginning and the church will be and is now becoming, that's you and me, the full expression of that desire. That's what God is making us into. We will one day be the visible fulfillment of that promise and every promise God has ever spoken. When God comes to live and dwell among us, All his promises happen. You can't be sick and be in God's presence at the end. When Jesus touches down, nobody's going to be sick anymore, right? Nobody's going to be broken anymore. You need to understand this. The church is what matters in your life. Not just Living Hope Church, but the church is what matters in your life. Of course, that's expressed through the local church, right? It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. It's worth sacrificing for. It's worth giving everything you have for it. Jesus did all of those things for her that I just mentioned. He lived for her. He died for her. He resurrected for her. That's you and me. 
Now, maybe I can imagine because here we are on YouTube, right? You never know who's going to wander in. Maybe you wandered in and you hear, hear the pastor say, the church is everything. Live and die for the church. And you're like, of course you would say that. It's self-serving for you to say that, to get people to be loyal to you or loyal to your church. Or if you're really cynical, you could say you're saying that to get people to give you money. But look at the imagery here. It's not me saying this. Look at the amazing imagery described that John uses. I mean, John's just describing what he sees. This is the vision that Jesus gives to John. So when Jesus describes what the church is going to look like, he gives John this metaphorical imagery of the richest, most lavish jewels and 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 palatial structure that anyone could ever imagine. It's the picture he gives John. And this is you and I. It's you and I, the church, and everyone who's ever been a follower of Jesus throughout all of time. It's all of us. This is what we're becoming. So if you're a follower of Jesus... This imagery of a holy city sparkling and radiant with God's glory, that's talking about you. It's talking about what you are, what God says you are, and what he's making us together into. Look at what God's doing. No matter how you see your life right now, trapped in your house, quarantined, this is what God's making you into. You're no mere mortals, as C.S. Lewis said. You are, God is making you into the fulfillment of every promise he's ever made to the world. He's going to make, he's going to do it, not us. He's going to do it. So conclusion, one, I want to say something to church leaders, church leaders in our church, those who have any responsibility for things in our church, but also just in the church across the world, you are at work prepping the bride for his great, for her great unveiling. One of the pictures we get here is of a bride being prepared for her big day. And we are the leadership of the church. Pastors, leaders, elders, deacons, small group leaders, children's ministers, everybody. Worship leaders. We are attending to the bride. That's our job. Our job is not to just do a task. My job is not just to preach a good sermon or make sure the live stream works. My job is to attend to the bride so that she is, so that she actually becomes what we picture here in Revelations. You are hard at work getting this new holy city presentable for its big day when the red ribbon is cut and the king comes riding in. And in that moment, this is how I imagine it. In that moment, you and I will just disappear into the crowd with no fanfare for us because the big deal will not be us. The big deal in that moment, and in this moment right now, the big deal is not us, it's the church. This is what it means to bear the mantle of leadership in the body of Christ. Where you're not the big deal, the church is the big deal. So by that, I just want to encourage all of you to get on your hands and knees and get to work attending to the bride, making her ready, right? Secondly, to those that mock or despise or harshly criticize the church. I want you to picture this for a minute. 
just imagine, I don't think this will happen because all, at this point, all the wicked people are thrown into the lake of fire before this moment happens. But just imagine as the, the, the perfected bride of Christ is being revealed at the end. And Jesus is there, and the Father is there, and the Holy Spirit is there. Jesus, the metaphorical groom, and the church, the metaphorical bride, is there. And there's some jerk standing off to the side going, she doesn't look that good. Her dress isn't right. I don't, I don't like the way she's walking. She's walking too fast or too slow. I don't, like, I don't like her hair. I don't like her dress. What an ugly dress. Can you imagine how the how Jesus, the groom, would feel about that guy saying that about his bride in that moment. And so we really should be cautious and careful with the words we use to describe and to criticize the church. There are things to criticize. The bride is not ready. She is being made ready. And she ha- the, the church has issues, okay? We should not be in denial about the church's issues, but we need to be careful about the tone and the words we use. We need to be always aware and vigilant about the fact that the groom is standing over our shoulder listening to what we say about his beloved bride. So just be careful about how you criticize even churches that we might disagree with theologically or in terms of philosophy of ministry and everything else. Just be careful. That's the bride of Christ too, right? And lastly, to all of us, just want to like implore you to cherish the church, especially right now. Cherish her, make her growth, her health, and honor be your priority in life. Encourage, teach, admonish, reprove, bless, serve, and honor each other. Give your gifts. All of your gifts in service to her. You know, it's one of the things that I see so often in the world is that when people make big decisions in their life about new jobs, new homes, new careers, moving away or moving where they move and where they live, when they move, all those kinds of big life decisions, who they marry, who they don't marry where they go to school, we make those decisions first about what profits us the most, what fits our lifestyle the most. And the very last consideration is the church. How is there a church where I can serve, right? And really that should be flipped, okay? And I know that's a radical thought. The very idea of going, where in the world can I serve the church the most effectively? Where, am, where are my gifts the most needed in the church? And then make all your other decisions revolve around that. That's what missionaries do. But aren't we all called to be missionaries? Because I want to challenge you to think about your priorities, about how you make decisions. This affects everything. Like, what's... Where are you? How are you most effective? What are your gifts? And how can you most use those to serve the church wherever it is you go? And when you make your life decisions, shift them around those priorities and think about your place in the church as the number one. All right? That's what I believe. I want to challenge you to think that way too.